Welcome to the Sex Ed with DB podcast, brought to you by O School. Sex Ed with DB is an intersectional, feminist, Bay Area-based podcast for folks who want to hear real stories from underrepresented voices as we try to revolutionize the way we talk about sex. Just talk about sex every single day. I used to hump the shit out of everything. I think everybody does. I'm like, if you'd like me to start procreating tough shit, because I'm not gonna. You can't have education. You can't have contraception, but you can't have an abortion. We're still on the, the shit end of, of the stick for a lot of medical interventions that would make our bodies function better. And now it's all queer and all messy and all bodies and really great and fantastic. Everyone gets a vibrator. I'm DB, a.k.a. Danielle Bezalow, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing abortion, which is healthcare and is more than okay, by the way, with our guests, Tony Guy and Dr. Karen Scott. Tony Guy is an incredible storyteller, sex educator, and the former vice president of education at Planned Parenthood San Mateo. She's an advocate for women's choice and speaks out about the importance of access to contraception and abortion services in the lives of women. Dr. Karen Scott is a clinician scientist, feminist intersectional scholar, and activist with board certification in obstetrics and gynecology. AKA, she's a freaking genius. She centers intersectionality and reproductive justice in the design and delivery of sexual and reproductive health care, education, and training. The world can be a pretty sex-negative place. Society, religion, and culture teaches us harmful beliefs about our bodies, sex, and pleasure. And we're here to help you unlearn them one by one. In O-School's Sex Positive Oasis, you can learn from experts in moderated live streams, explore pleasure, and interact with a diverse community of sex-positive people. Ain't no shame in our sex game. Visit www.o.school to experience an interactive hashtag sexy ed session for yourself. San Francisco Pole and Dance is not just a pole dance studio. It's a feminist utopia and a space to celebrate feminist empowerment. Located at 8th and Folsom in San Francisco's Soma District, San Francisco Pole and Dance offers over 45 classes a week in pole dancing, aerial silks, aerial lira, gymnastics, handstands, and flexibility training. Here, you'll get the best in pole dance training along with the support of a community filled with bad bitches. Go to www.sfpolandance.com to sign up for a class. Use promo code SEXEDWITHDB to get 20% off your first purchase. Now let's get started with Tony. So hey, Tony, how's it going? It's going very well, thanks. If you could just say your name and um, a little bit about your background and your story and um, how you identify. Okay. Well, my name is Tony Guy, and um, I identify... As a woman of color, black, I became black in the 60s um, during the black power movement, mm. and I've just stayed black. <laughs> I know there's <laughs> African-American. I just, I'm more comfortable. I feel like that connects me to a diaspora mm. beyond the states. I come from a racially mixed family. Um, my grandmother was white. My, my tia is Mexican Apache. I love the Apache part. Um, and uh, my mother was a social activist. She was very active during the civil rights uh, movement 
and I took after her and just got started with it and have continued with it. And when we spoke over the phone about you coming on the podcast, I was just like absolutely astonished and like struck with admiration in your story and who you are and your experience. Can you just go from the beginning, like what you told me, until where you are now in terms of your story and um, what you share with students um, in the classroom now? Oh, okay. Well, since this is a podcast on abortion, um, I graduated from Berkeley High in the 60s, and I did not get any sex education we had a family life class that taught me how to make an apron and a budget um, and gave me some information on infant and child development, but not anything on sexuality. And um, I met and became infatuated with a young man um, in the South when I went for the civil rights um, marches. And um, nothing happened there, and I came back home, and then he came to visit me. And it was really the first time that I had had sex. I didn't know a lot. And the way that I say it to my students is, you know, we were making out in this car, and first I was looking out the window, and then I was looking at the ceiling. I don't remember any pleasure, but the end of it was that I was pregnant. And when from I, the first time. From the first time. I mean, is that rude or what? Uh, just <laughs> you think I, that you no. Get one. I just it's just <laughs> no. Come on. And if not, if there's no pleasure, seems like, to, oh. yeah, there was no pleasure. I don't remember. You know, I don't. I don't remember anything other than. I hardly remember anything. <laughs> right. I mean, at this point, it was a lot of years ago. Yeah. But. Um. And so then, when I realized that I was pregnant, um, I remember calling him and we talked. Um. And you were what, like 18? I was 19. 19. And um, in the middle of the conversation, he was talking about, oh, well, you know, we can get married. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I want to marry you. Um, And then all of a sudden, the phone went dead. And I've never heard from him again. No fucking way. I think that he hung up. And he never answered the phone again. Wow. And, you know, that's what, that's one of those things where when it's the woman, she can't run away from it. She can't just say, okay, well, I'm just not going to deal with it because it's in her body. So then I just didn't know what to do. I was just so ignorant about it. And finally I called my pediatrician, which was a wonderful Jewish man, and he got me in for a pregnancy test, and he then he called me, and he said, it is positive. And he said, do you want me to, you know, do you want to bring your mother in, and we can talk to her together? And I'm like, no, no, I'll, I'll tell her, I'll tell her. And I didn't. I waited and waited, and then one night, she just said to me, when was your last period? Just mother's intuition. Yes, and I told her the truth, like, three months ago. I mean, this is what happens with especially with young women that don't know what to do, Mm. time is passing. You know, I was at the end of my first trimester. And so then my mother just said, okay, well, you have three options. You know, you can have the baby and keep it. You can have the baby and give it up. Or you can terminate the pregnancy. Why don't you go downstairs and take a couple of days to just think through that? And I did. I thought long and hard. And for me... 
the idea of having a child and giving them up was just, I couldn't do that. I just couldn't do that. Um, I was not ready to parent. And so the only other option was termination, and that was okay with me. Um, so my mother made all the arrangements. I think she they borrowed money from the co-op, <laughs> the Berkeley co-op. Oh, yes. Uh, credit union. And my parents, my mother and my father, drove me to Tijuana. And uh, she had gotten a name from a friend of hers. And I think back now, it's like, I bet she was scared to death about whether or not this was a real doctor or a butcher, whether she'd be bringing home a dead body or what. A lot of unknowns. A lot of unknowns. And we pulled up to this, looked like a shack. And I'm like, you know, looking around. And we went inside and it looked like a clinic. Inside, it was clean and neat. Um, This was a real OBGYN from Mexico City that came to Tijuana to provide abortions. Wow. So I was really lucky in that sense. Um, I guess I got sodium pentothal because it was like, you know, count backwards. And I think I got to 98. And then I woke up thinking, oh, my goodness, I fell asleep. And it was over. Wow. And all he said is, um, in about four hours, you need to take the two tampons that I put in there out and put a pad on. And that's it. Yeah. Wow. And that's it. Did you have any pain or? I had a little bit of, a little bit of cramping, but I had had worse cramps with my period. Right. So it was a little bit of cramping. My mother made me sit up as we went through the border. So I wasn't just laying down. And then I laid down the rest of the way home and um, went to bed. And I remember getting up in the morning and all of a sudden I remembered that I was free, that it was over. And I put on Martha and the Vandellas and I was dancing around my room. (laughs) Just, I think it was heat wave. And I was just dancing around my room. I can't even express the difference, just the difference. All of a sudden, my life was opened up in front of me again, rather than closing down on me. And the next year, I went off to college. And at the end of college, I got married. And I had another unplanned pregnancy, Amanika, but we were married. And so the situation was very different. We were just a few months from graduation. And you were older. And and I was older. In a partnership. And and I was like, okay, I was happy. And the big difference for me is that the first time, it really was never a baby. It was a situation. It was something that I needed to handle. With the second one, it was a baby right away. Um, I remember going home and saying, you know, we're going to have a baby. I don't think my husband was thrilled right away, (laughs) but he he came around. Um, But it it just, for me, it was a completely different situation. The first time it was a problem, something that I had to handle. The second time it was actually a baby that I could be happy about the whole time. And um, I just appreciate so much that my mother had the wherewithal to make the arrangements. And I'm sure that she coerced my father. To this day, my father has never said a word to me about it. Wow. We drove all the way to Tijuana and all the way back, and he never mentioned it at all. Mm. So that was him. Um, But my mother's basically saved my life. 
and I really appreciate that. That's that story. And then once I left college, I actually was a stay-at-home mom for a while. And then um, when I left my marriage after 14 years, I became a gardener on the Monterey Peninsula. And I really loved that. And one day, one of my friends asked me to come to a volunteer uh, training program for Planned Parenthood. Um, And I said, okay, that sounds good. So I went and I listened. And then I went to a school with another educator. And I just, I discovered that I have sort of a talent for this. I do share a lot. And I just became really interested in the whole issue. And then when I left Monterey and came back to the Bay Area, somebody, a friend of my mother's, I think, sent me a job announcement from Planned Parenthood San Mateo, and they had written at the top, here's your job. And so I went to Planned Parenthood, and during the interview, I said things I've never said in an interview before, like, I realize this job has been open for a long time, but here I am. (laughs) That's amazing. You've been holding it open for me, and here I am. So I had the job, and everybody in the department was in their 20s. The manager was 30-something, and I was 41. Mm -hmm. And I was the only one that had children. Mm. So shortly after I started working, I started saying, is anybody talking to the parents? You know, there's a lot of parents that don't have a clue how Mm. to talk to their children about sex. A lot of them think that if they mention it, then that's going to get their kids to run right out. Right. Um, And so I instituted a parent education program where we would do workshops. Um, And so I progressed um, working mainly in East Palo Alto at that time. There was a lot of issues going on there. And then I guess I just... I just threw myself into the work. You found your calling. And next thing I knew, I was getting awards. And it was a little disconcerting because that's not what I was doing it for. But just You'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. And then eventually I became vice president of education and realized that I had gotten myself promoted out of what I really liked to do, which was to be in the classroom. And so I left as vice president and just notified a lot of the schools and it's like, I'm available. And they've known me from years of me coming in as Planned Parenthood. And so they were comfortable with me. And I just started working. Um, I used to do colleges, um, especially about abortion, and would challenge young people, you know, to really think about. It's like, don't just have an emotional reaction. Think about what's going on. And my, my best piece was to say, at the end of life, if there's an open casket and you're looking in the casket, is that your Uncle George or is that your Uncle George's body? And almost everybody says, that's my Uncle George's body. And I'm like, right, is something missing? Well, yeah, what, what animated the body is gone. I said, go to the other end. The only thing that's being formed in a woman's womb is a body. It will be animated at some point, Mm. but none of us know what that point is, and no one can prove what that point is. 
That's why it has to be a personal decision. Mm. You have to decide. Yes, I think this is, you know, at this point. And so usually that would get them to really thinking. And I would say there are other viewpoints about pregnancy that deserve to be respected. Um, I said, and so to just outlaw it, all that that does, really, all that that does is it kills women. So get this. Nearly all states have some law restricting access to abortion. Whether they limit the gestational point at which a woman can get an abortion, require women to wait for a set period of time after seeing a doctor before the abortion can be performed, or mandate that abortions be performed by physicians or in a hospital. But research shows that these restrictions don't reduce abortion rates. Instead, they often force women to have safer abortions later in their pregnancy or through illegal channels. Women have been getting abortions since forever. Medicine women, healers, midwives, all knew how to give women certain herbs or or whatever. There were sometimes women that shouldn't have another baby. And so the midwife or the healer or the medicine woman would give them some herbs on a regular basis so that they wouldn't conceive. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if they did conceive, then they would give them herbs to be able to lose the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So abortion is just another part of women's health care. The problems came when men got involved. Uh Uh-huh. Sing Um, it, sister. Yeah. (laughs) Because then they start wanting to control And it's not theirs to control. Nope. You know, I always say that Republicans have a lot of womb envy. You know, they wish so much that they had one. Not really, because what comes with that? Right. Can you imagine (laughs) them having to have periods and having to be pregnant (laughs) in the middle of a campaign? I mean, abortion would be a sacrament if that was the case. You know, it was when the men got involved in what I consider to be women's business Mm. that we started having these issues. All right, switching gears a little bit, um, since this episode is about abortion and you teach on sex ed, um, can you talk about how abortions actually work? Like, what's the difference between, like, a medication abortion um, and, like, a surgical abortion? Um, The surgical abortion is you go into the clinic. It's usually one visit. You go into the clinic. Um, They give you a little something, a light sedative, just to sort of calm you down. Then they take you into the room, put you up in the stirrups, and then they use um, usually laminaria to dilate the cervix. And then using just a small suction tube that's inserted into the to the um, uterus, they lay it against one wall and it gently sucks and it just pulls all the lining out and then lay it against the other wall. And again, it just pulls the lining out. Um, there's some cramping. Um, a little bit of bleeding afterwards, but it's maybe a 20-minute procedure. Mm -hmm. And then about another 20 to 30 minutes to just rest before you leave. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you would have a normal period, Uh, maybe not a normal period, maybe a slightly heavier period, for about two weeks. It's a a bit of a time. Right. 90 to 95% effective. It's usually not, you don't usually need to come back, except usually come back after 
maybe three weeks, just to make sure everything is, is good. Right. With the medical abortions, the RU486, uh, you first take a pill. You go into the clinic, it's two visits. You go in because the clinician wants to watch you take the first one. Then you go home. The first pill will stop the growth of the, at that point, embryo and will cause it to detach from the wall. And then about three days later, you then put another medication into the vagina and that will cause the uterus to start to contract. And then you will have a heavy period. It's very much like a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. You will have a heavy period for about two weeks. Um, Again, it's in the very high 90s in terms of its effectiveness. Most women go back to their clinician or their doctor afterwards just to make sure that everything is done. Occasionally, um, it doesn't quite work, and then that person might go ahead and have the surgical. In the world today, um, and in this country, because of the fact that so many women find themselves in places where there's no access, because for abortion or contraception to be effective, you've, they have to be legal, they have to be accessible, they have to be affordable, and they have to be safe. Well, they've tried to overturn the legal, and they couldn't do it. So now they're going after the accessible and affordable, um, and sometimes safe, because if you can't get a good legal abortion, then women still go to butchers, or they try to do things themselves. And that's where we end up having women die, or women's fertility gone because of something that they did. Um, and so it's, it's, it's important to have control. And a lot of women now are getting RU486 online, sometimes from Canada, and taking it by themselves. Mm-hmm. It's no different than a miscarriage. There is no blood test or any other kind of test that will show that you've taken those drugs. So for women that live in states where that could be an issue, um, there's no way to prove that they've taken them. It will look as if they just had a miscarriage. Right. And so a lot of women now are starting to do this. There is a new group called Women Help Women, the recently launched Self-Managed Abortion Safe and Supported which is a project of Women Help Women, provides information about the safe use of abortion pills to end an unwanted pregnancy without a clinician, including access to skilled bilingual counselors in English and Spanish Wow! on a secure portal. And so it's a way of getting around all of these ridiculous laws. It's just access, it's really. It's just access. It's women taking control of their own health care um, and being able to do it with the support of other women. Mm-hmm. And it's it's gaining in ground, especially in those states where right. there's one provider and it's, you know, four hours away. And in your state, there's a 24-hour waiting period, which means you have to go four hours to the clinic, right. go back home, and then go back the next day. Right. Well, if you have a job How or can you, you have do that? children, you're talking about child care and missing work that extra amount of time. Again, it's an extra burden. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is to try to get them to not do it. Mm -hmm. 
And so this way they can get around that completely. They right. just No one even has to know that they were ever pregnant. Mm-hmm. They can get that. They can have the miscarriage at home. They can arrange it so that all of that happens over the weekend. Right. And they can go right back to work on Monday and nobody is any the wiser. Right. And that's fine because it really isn't anybody else's business. Nope. And so I've, I've been thrilled um, that RU486 is out there and it's available. Um, it is safe. Um, actually, RU486 is safer than aspirin. Wow. There are more people that die each year from penicillin than from RU486. So it's an extremely safe way of terminating an early pregnancy. Now, the thing is with the medical that it you have to do it four to nine weeks after the last menstrual cycle. So it's very early. Mm-hmm. That's why it just looks like a miscarriage. Right. Now, one thing that I did, and I needed to do this for myself, um, one day in AB clinic, I went back with the doctor, and um, after he did the procedure, he spread it all out in the, in the dish, and I could see a couple of little arms kind and legs, and I had to say to myself, what are you seeing? And I just saw body parts. I didn't see a baby. I didn't, I didn't put that last piece onto it. Because that's what I believe is formed in a woman's womb is just the container, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily the person. When people try to make a person out of a clump of cells, I'm like, no, that's not a person. Mm-hmm. A person is animated and able to sustain their own life. Mm-hmm. And so I did that so that I could be sure what about myself? Yeah. It's like, okay, in your own what, values yeah, and morals. It's like, what are you seeing? Yeah. And I was fine with it. Um, but that's my view. Yeah. And when I speak about it, I do talk to people and I say, you need to think about what you think is going on in a woman's womb. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Um, is that a person? What What is a person? Um, and then talking to them about the fact that there's a difference between the body and that which animates the body. Mm-hmm. And when that which animates the body, the soul, personality, whatever you want to call it, when that leaves, you just have a, an empty shell. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what's going on in the beginning. You're forming the shell, which at some point will be inhabited by a soul or a spirit, personality, whatever you want to name it. But nobody can prove when that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody can say, well, it happens on this day, and so we need to cut it off at this point. It's, right. it's just what you believe. Have you seen a newish movie called Obvious Child? Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. It's kind of new. It's um, The main character in it is played by Jenny Slate, who's a, a famous actress on Parks and Recreation and a couple mm-hmm. other shows and movies. And essentially it's like, this woman who, you know, goes through a breakup, meets a guy, they have sex, she gets pregnant, and she wants an abortion. And it's just like a normal kind of depiction of what that's like going through life as a young woman, um, you know, in the, like, I think it came out in like 2015 or something like that, 2014 maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a normal day, you know, like she has to take her the day off of work. The guy is like, oh, do you want me to come with you? And she's like, 
I don't know, like if you, I guess, but I'm probably going to just do it myself. And she does it and they show her in the waiting room and then they show her about to have it and then they show her afterwards and like that's, they just like normalize it. And I think it's like. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's a really awesome indie film. So I think like with your high school students or maybe college students who haven't seen Mm. it, it's a really, really good resource for people who just want to see, you know, an abortion is one out of four women in the United States in their lifetime will have an abortion. And like, it's just a normal experience for a lot of people. And I think it's time we normalized it. Yeah, I do too. That's why I said I just see it as a normal part of women's health care. Mm-hmm. We have no contraception that works 100% of the time. Right. And so there Abstinence are going to, is the only yeah, thing. And so there are going to be mistakes. Human beings are not perfect. Right. Um, and sex is a drive. And so you often end up having sex when that's not what you intended, mm-hmm. but things worked out that way. Right. And that's not a good enough reason to bring a child into the world. Right. You know, you should want a child. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it is it is such a normal part of it. That's why it disturbs me so much when it's limited or not accessible, because I understand There are women out there whose lives are being destroyed. You know, they may are they may be in college and they had these dreams of whatever and just because they had sex one night, now that's gone. Mm -hmm. Um and it's not gone for him. Um statistics say that when a woman has a baby, she immediately has a drop in her income. So it's an economic issue as Mm -hmm. well. Um, because let's say she was working at a great job and she was getting all this overtime. Well, now she's out. She's out for a while. And when she comes back, she has this expense, childcare. Right. And it's huge. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that felt really good. It felt like a really full interview. Um, is there anything else you feel like you want to make sure you say before we go? Abortion is a personal matter. It is the decision that should be made by the person who is pregnant. She can get input from others, but that should not be required. Abortion has been part of a woman's reproductive health care forever. And we just need to recognize that the best way to reduce abortion is to have good, comprehensive sexuality education early on and continuously, easy access to contraception, and abortion services that are funded the same way that birth is funded instead of discriminating. Um, that's the takeaway for me is that that's where, that's where we need to get to. And we need to trust women. Mm. You know, we do make good decisions. We make moral decisions. Um, and so we need to just trust women. now, here I am with Karen. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. How's your day so far? Great. And thank you uh, for inviting me and allowing us to have this conversation together of today. Of course. Yes, it is so, so important to talk openly and freely and, and learn 
um, and teach about abortion, as you know. So I'm really, really excited to have you here. Um, and I want to know if we can start by you telling us a little bit about your, your name and your background, uh, how you identify and why you chose to go into the study of sexual and reproductive health. My name is Karen Scott. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I identify, um, I say as a cisgender Southern, um, black woman who is a recovering OBGYN. And I say that is, uh, because of learning about the historical uh, and contemporary uh, legacies and ideologies that have um, constrained and obstructed or erased uh, different communities' agency and autonomy and the ways in which they choose a partner and how they partner and how they parent, how they build families. And I wasn't aware that I was a part of not only an institution, but a profession with uh, this history and contemporary historical contemporary behavior of reproductive coercion, control, and oppression. So I am now moving into spaces where I use activism and scholarship and community engagement with youth and adults to uncover, address, and dismantle um, essentially white supremacy and heteropatriarchy and models of sexual and reproductive health care, really exploring ways to um, inject and in- integrate reproductive justice theories and values into sexual and reproductive health services, programs, um, education, communication, and decision making. Amazing. Wow. That was a really beautiful and well thought out <laughs> introduction. Thank you so much for all of that. It was so rich with so many great things. And as you know, this episode is all about abortion. So I want to know what, what drives you personally to speak out about abortion? Where does this come from? Um, and you know, what, what in your background, um, kind of drives you to talk about these things? My background in terms of like my faith, right? So my faith and how religion pushed a sense of morality around the fact that abortion is considered you know, immoral, evil. And I grew up in that environment in the South. And then I essentially chose a residency program that was a faith-based institution, not really being aware of what that meant in terms of my limitation in providing abortion care. Why does it matter that Karen was trained at a Catholic hospital? Because Catholic hospitals frequently obey ethical and religious rules established by Catholic bishops, which prohibit a broad range of reproductive health services. Catholic hospitals have been known to refuse to provide patients with contraceptives, abortion, infertility treatment, and even treatment for some miscarriages. And the number of Catholic-run facilities is growing. A 2016 report revealed that one in six hospital beds in the U.S. is in a facility that complies with Catholic rules. So in my Mm. institution, we trained in the way that we provide the medical and surgical care in terminating pregnancies, but usually those are already inevitable. Like something is already happening where the pregnant person probably actively miscarrying as opposed Mm. to showing up, right, with this having to make such a difficult decision to terminate a pregnancy. So I only have the experience of being trained in terminating um, pregnancies as abortion care during medical school, during one of my uh, training programs before going to uh, residency. And I felt 
again, as I began to learn more about the ways in which uh, to support black, brown persons, people who come from communities that whose decision-making, the ways in which, again, they build their families, um, they make decisions about their overall health and well-being are constrained by all of these various oppressive interacting systems. I felt that it was still my duty and obligation to ensure that patients that I was seeing in this faith-based institution still had access to abortion care providers who would treat them with respect and dignity. So although I did not train to perform specific abortions, I was able to make connections in the community on the south side of Chicago to ensure that particularly my young people, if they chose to terminate their pregnancy, we talked about, again, the full option. So not only abortion, but adoption, birthing, as well as safe abandonment, really wanting to ensure that these are the wide range of options that you have now that you are pregnant. What do you do with that? So I felt that right. I didn't have, couldn't perform a residency. And again, after residency, take a job at a faith-based institution, I still was always being, you know, holding space with my patients as well as making sure I had, as an ally, right, as an abortion um, care ally of providers and, and organizations that offer that service. And I do believe it is a part of healthcare. It's a part of the full spectrum of sexual and reproductive health. I wanted to make sure patients knew where they could go, where they could still be treated again, with dignity and respect, and also could follow up with me for their post-abortion care. So still trying to see how I could maintain some sense of continuity, even though it would be disrupted because I had to refer them out. I did not want to, again, perpetuate feelings of isolation, right, and judgment and abandonment, making sure patients right. could continue to see me after for the rest of you know their care. Transitioning a little bit, I want to hear from your experience because you, you know, you're an OBGYN and you're, uh, and you're getting your master's in public health. Is that correct? I am. Yes. That's yes, amazing. I am. And I'm, I'm getting my <laughs> master's in public health this fall. I heard. Um, yes. Yeah. So I can't wait to, to chat with you when I'm in class being like, I don't know how to do this or I'm really excited about this. So that's really neat that we have really similar mm-hmm. interests. Um, But I want to know from your, from your doctor perspective and from your, you know, your medical perspective, what are some commonly held myths about abortion? Um, And can you tell us maybe some medically accurate facts that kind of counteract those myths that you think um, should be wide, widespread? Right. So some of the common myths uh, about abortion um, that the public seems to hold and actually not only public the providers, right, in, in healthcare systems with that um, abortion causes infertility, right, for some or most women. Um, there's also this sense that people seeking abortions are, you know, single and irresponsible um, mm. or they have partnered or had sex with someone who is not supportive. So therefore, this is a decision for them that they're making because they're lonely or they've been abandoned. So there's a lot of judgment, right, around people's character people's ability to make decisions in a, quote, responsible way. Also, there's these myths that people who, persons or individuals who choose choose abortion just generally hate children, right? There's this myth mm. that they are, quote, unquote, killers and not really concerned with the health and well-being of children, that they're selfish. And again, some people have perceptions around people's, right? I won't say their religion, but I'll say their spirituality. So a lot of judgment around people's 
character, their own sense of morality, a lot of judgment that's being going on. So those are some of the commonly held myths. And also that abortions are reversible, right? So that's really one of the biggest debates that's out there right now. And that abortions are also unsafe. So what I like to share in disrupting those myths are that primarily, number one, the myth around abortions being highly dangerous uh, types of procedures, it is so um, false. <laughs> and I want to make sure people mm. really understand that abortions are safer, um, are safe. Serious complications resulting from an abortion are rare and actually occur far less frequently than those complications that occur with actual childbirth. Um, and that abortions mm, are much safer wow. earlier, right? Abortions are safer the earlier that they are performed, um, which again, why it's so important for um, not only access, but all the different things that inhibit people's ability to get to providers, to get uh, transportation, to have the funds, because the earlier the abortion can be performed, it is much safer. Um, and there's also um, the myth um, that I talked about, well, that people question people's not only their morality, but their mentality, their psyche, their uh, mental health. So one of the myths around that is that there is a kind of post-abortion syndrome and that women may experience depression. Um, they've related depression mm -hmm. in women who've had abortions and the American Psychological Association concluded that there was no scientifically valid support or evidence for the so-called post-abortion syndrome of psychological trauma and deep depression. Women will, again, this is a difficult time. There are feelings of loss um, and disappointment, mm -hmm. but in terms of this kind of deep, you know, dark depression that um, people who oppose abortion are perpetuating is, is not true. Mm. It's just not true that abortion causes regret and depression. In fact, according to a recent longitudinal study from the University of California, San Francisco, 99% of women said that having an abortion was the right decision. And actually, women who are denied abortions and are forced to give birth report more negative health outcomes like anxiety, low self-esteem, and depression compared with women who have abortions. And another myth is, again, that only physicians, right, only physicians in hospitals are the only medical professionals who can safely perform abortion procedures. And I definitely want to highlight this being a myth. Um, particularly we talk about expanding not only the range of options for people who are pregnant, but also the range of providers who can perform abortions, particularly in those areas um, with a shortage of physicians. So I want to mm -hmm. spread the message that um, abortions can safely be performed in office-based settings, meaning that a hospital setting is usually often unnecessary and there's no special equipment or emergency arrangements that are required for, let's say, medication abortions. And the group of professionals who can safely and competently perform abortion procedures are advanced practice clinicians, physician assistants, certified nurse midwives, as well as nurse practitioners are all healthcare professionals who can safely and effectively provide both medication and aspiration abortions. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a long list of people who are, you know, able to and capable of um, performing abortions. And I think you're, you're totally right in that, like people, I feel like at least people who haven't 
you know, talked about abortions and people who find it this really, really scary thing, maybe they think like, oh, you have to be in a hospital bed and you're going to be recovering for days and days when the reality is so, so different than that. Like you can literally take a pill if you have access to it at home and it's Mm -hmm. similar to getting a heavy period with like cramping and those kinds of things. And I also, I totally agree with you. I think that we need to be making it really clear that there are obviously certain points in your pregnancy where you are able to have a a safe abortion, like you said, but Mm -hmm. it definitely does not have to be this big, scary trip to the emergency room, right? Like that's often and more, more often that is not what happens. Right. And that there are persons who are undergoing, um, again, these medical or surgical um, abortions who are recovering fairly quickly and able to return to their, what we call like normal activities of daily living, being able to return to work or return to the life in some, right, in some semblance that they had prior to going to experience. And so, um, again, when speaking about access is not just access to the procedure, but also the ability to access providers and the whole range of providers. Um, when we really right. think about equitable access and equitable utilization, particularly for um, those in communities where abortion care is limited, right? And so I think mm-hmm. it's, it's very important to know that there are a host of providers and that it's safe and one does not need to be in a hospital setting to uh, undergo this very safe um, procedure. Absolutely. Yes. Amazing. Um, so I want to transition a, a little bit more now to the kind of talking about the intersection. I think this is like your, your jam, like talking about <laughs> the intersection of race, socioeconomic status, uh, geographic location. These were kind of some of the things you were bringing up before when you were introducing yourself um, that affect women's or young people's access or lack thereof to abortion and other sexual health services. Um, so how, how, I know this is a, obviously a very, very complex <laughs> topic, but right. in your experience, can you talk a little bit more about what communities that have trouble accessing abortion and sexual health services look like and how people can help those communities and what, what, what we need to do in order to make it more equal and equitable for all? Right. So from my particular experience in um, the south side of Chicago, um, working with predominantly um, communities of color, also co- different persons of um, representing diverse and inclusive sex and gender identities and relationships and practices. I think just in that sentence, you know, alone, um, the stigma and shame of a not only having sex, and having sex that may not be viewed as quote unquote normal or acceptable, but then now there's um, a pregnancy that is quote unquote unintended for whatever purposes that means in the literature. But really trying to think about um, when pregnancy occurs, what is a person thinking? What are, what are they thinking? Um, how, what does that pregnancy mean in the context of their life, um, in the context of, of their his or her, their stories? How is that going to impact the life that they want to continue to lead and build. And so when I think about um, barriers or systems and forces that constrain people's ability to not only talk about it, but to engage in conversations with trusting 
providers or healthcare systems about what the pregnancy means to them and then what the decision means about doing something other than keeping a pregnancy and birthing. And um, that alone is an immediate barrier because some, let's say, young people or people from whose, let's say, physicality doesn't align with their anatomy based upon social norms, right? People who just, again, don't feel they can even discuss this. So then there's a delay because of lack of trust. So again, just even engaging the healthcare system to even say I'm pregnant and I want to do something different than parent. I don't want to keep the pregnancy. And that takes a lot of courage. Um, so again, just being able to have a provider and healthcare system where you can have that conversation in an authentic way, in a safe and respectful way. And then just the actual process of getting the actual abortion. So when right. you think about which is, you know, right. there's all this prep work and then it's like getting right. the actual thing. Mm-hmm. So thinking about again, if in your neighborhood, you know, where is there a place to have a safe legal abortion? And in certain communities, what I found with my young people or even just adults, um, there in certain communities that abortion center or that independent abortion provider or other organizations that we know of right, to provide abortions could be across town in a different zip code, in a different actual space that is unfamiliar mm-hmm. for people in terms of what their normal day-to-day life, where they could be going to school or going to work or being at home, being a caretaker of their children or other extended family members, and the expectation for them to go maybe perhaps, you know, 10 to 15 miles, which not which may not mean a lot for someone who has a car, who has access to public transportation, but even just the fear of going into a new place where traditionally they were not wanted in that space. So it's almost seeing like the divide between social economic spaces, right? Like in Chicago, there's the South side and then there's downtown. And some people do not go downtown because of not feeling wanted, um, particularly mm. in this environment that we have where if you're black or brown, you know, the police are being called just for being black, right? For sitting in spaces that people don't think you belong. So imagine what that's like right. if the abortion center is in that same space. So transportation, taking time off from school or work again, um, the ability to pay for the other incidental fees. Um, if you have to cross county or state lines, these are all, you know, barriers upon barriers that are all related, right? They're happening simultaneously. And these could be barriers mm-hmm. that already exist in a person's life before they even you know, are pregnant and have to make that decision. So it's a compounding effect that I think sometimes the public and the healthcare system is not aware of, again, these um, overlapping systems um, that have already constrained a particular group's ability to have agency and autonomy right in their healthcare. So imagine what that looks like for something as stigmatizing and shaming and, and in some areas, unlawful or illegal, or there's so many barriers to actually get it, particularly if you're a young person, it can be very overwhelming to say the least. It feels like if every person with a uterus, every person who um, was able to carry a baby, if they had access to abortion, how different would, would poverty look if we were able to control our, our, and plan for the families that we do or do not want. So like, has that, has that question and that idea 
ever come up for you? Because I feel like I've thought about that particular thing a lot. Right. So I, I, I understand the right. The, I understand the intent of the question. I just always proceed with caution because still sometimes embedded in, in questions like that, particularly say, if you say access to abortion, um, keeping young people from getting pregnant, that would be the social solution to poverty. And that right. still to me says that those individuals are the reasons why poverty exists. And it negates mm. that we have a capitalistic right, society where 98% of our wealth is in 2%, 1% or 2% of the population. That's why right. poverty exists, right? So I, I really want to... Access is important, but it's not just the access, because even when you have insurance, if you can't get right to the place, if you don't have the money to for the additional, like the copay or the, the ride to get there or the additional medications, like mm. you know, access is important, but access does not guarantee reproductive justice, right? It doesn't guarantee totally. that the ways in which people are going to be treated you know, humanizes them and, and have, and they feel dignified and respected. But then also when you think about the conditions in which people are building families, like, you know, parental leave, um, a minimum mm -hmm. wage, you know, having water that doesn't have lead in it, you know, like right. um, living in a neighborhood that is not riddled with bullets or glass or boarded up windows, you know, again, having access to food, that has nutritional value so that one can grow and thrive and, you know, sit in school and not be distracted by your hunger or distracted mm -hmm. by your fear that when you leave school, you have to walk through a crime zone that are sometimes our communities are not as protected as others. Right. So that's why right. I do think access is important, but I just don't want to always assume that if we had access to preventing unintended pregnancies, that poverty would go away because right now all the wealth is in a few families in our country. That is why we have right. poverty. You know, we have right. poverty to maintain, to maintain differential power. I mean, that's just to be very honest. We have poverty mm -hmm. because it allows for white supremacy and heteropatriarchy to occur. And what I believe is that if we truly believed in bodily autonomy, if we truly believe that everyone has the right to sex the way they want to sex, you know, to partner mm -hmm. the way they want to partner, to parent when they want to and to choose not to parent and have the capacity to make those decisions and still be healthy, still be, be able to live a productive life, right, as determined by them. We may not be able to eradicate poverty per se, but at least we could see some equity in the ways in which people, let's say, maybe generate wealth and wealth or resources mm. in terms of like, their income or their education, workforce development. So mm -hmm. I just always try not to say that access alone for cure poverty because I don't, I don't think it will <laughs> in our particular right. country. I do think it would help minimize disease and death, right? You know, and perhaps yeah. by minimizing disease and death, I think we would have families who have a stronger infrastructure and can sustain themselves, right? So therefore, as you see, like mass incarceration and certain communities, black black communities and premature deaths through, you know, particularly like black women dying during childbirth and black children dying before the first year mm -hmm. of life. Like, like those are things that are stripping people out of communities. Right. 
Even when you mm-hmm. think about what our country does to Native persons and that quote, um, blood quotum. And so it's like there are things that our country is doing to maintain power, right? Population control. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all it's translated to votes and power. Um, so mm-hmm. I just say, you know, like I said, I'm very careful around saying access with pure poverty, but I do believe the ways in which people can utilize services when they want them, when they need them, when they are deserving mm-hmm. of them, that it would definitely improve overall life expectancy mm-hmm. and the quality of life. And we would see a restoration of social networks, family units surviving and thriving um, in mm-hmm. ways that we don't see right now in certain communities. Sex Ed with DB is brought to you by O School, a place to unlearn shame, explore pleasure, and interact with a diverse community of sex positive folks through daily live streams. Forget Sex Ed, our hashtag Sexy Ed is far more satisfying. Go to www.o.school to learn more. Our creator, host, and producer is me, Danielle Bezalow, aka DB. Our content editor is Katherine Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Carissa Diaz. Our audio engineer is Katie McMurrin. Our social media lead is Lisa Fireman. And our fundraising coordinator is Carly Yoshida. Music by Joaquin Karud and the artist Buddha. Thank you to our featured voices and our listeners. Tune in next time.